This episode, I'm joined by Chris Mueller to discuss the philosophy of Gunther Anders. I'd like to say a big thank you to all my paying patrons and subscribers for making all of this work possible. And if you'd like to support the podcast and keep it running, please find links in the description below. Otherwise, please enjoy. So, Chris Mueller, thanks very much for joining us on Hermetics Podcast. We are going to be discussing your 2016 book, uh, Prometheanism. Technology, Digital Culture, and Human Obsolescence. But uh, in this book is a discussion on the work of someone who has been actually asked for quite a few times on this podcast um, and really fits in with what, what I've been trying to do with the podcast, which is Gunther Anders, who's um, a philosopher really primarily of technology. But um, as we've been discussing just beforehand, one of these figures who in his day um, and I guess within certain contexts was huge, was massive. Uh, but he's, I mean, thinking, I think in, in English, you'd be hard pressed to find maybe a handful of, of books, even overviewing his work or, or even references to him. But he's one of these figures you'll find in the margins. But anyway, before we jump in with, um, Anders' work, uh, and ideas specifically, just tell us a little bit about yourself, what it is you do, and, um, yeah, what, why it is Anders came to interest you so much. Oh, yeah. Many thanks, James. And, and thanks for having me on. Um, so, yeah, Anders is really a fascinating figure who I managed to completely not know about until the last few <laughs> months of my PhD. So he is really a figure who escapes. Um, so my background is in cultural theory. And I'm very interested in bodily automatism, such as shame, laughter, inhibition, scruple, all these kind of things that play a really big role in the way we live our lives. Um, and the way they're shaped by technological systems and that kind of thing. And um, so I'm now in a media department at Macquarie University in Australia. And really, Anders came like to my attention through a short essay in which he discusses shame. And I read it with a sense of real excitement. It was like a discovery. It was really resonant. The style was really nice. And since then, I've been kind of exploring his work, and I found it really useful precisely because it's kind of a bit non-systematic. It works a lot with images, so it really connects very nicely to a lot of other kind of areas of life that I found, you know, exciting. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm interested about the shame thing, but we can perhaps begin from that as a little kernel just after the first question, because this is something I always forget to do. I mean, let's just historically and philosophically situate Anders, because people may just completely not have heard of him, unfortunately. So what, yeah, what, what dates are we looking at? And I, I guess the key, the key question, which I think helps people really uh, anchor these figures is, uh, what's his pedigree? You know, who is he? Who is he? riffing with philosophically i guess is the way to put it all right fair enough so um anders's life really spanned the 20th century he was born in 1902 in the then german city of breslau which is now Rocklav in in poland um and his life kind of intersected with all the big kind of catastrophic events um so he already found himself in the rear of the first world war front lines as a kind of a school kid uh, then he was a victim of anti-Semitism. So he was the son of a highly intellectual family, um, Clara and William Stern. You might have had William Stern featured in your uh, podcast. He's quite a kind of significant 
figure of early 20th century Ford. And so his days were spent like studying at the University of Freiburg, um, where he did a doctorate under Edmund Husserl mm. in phenomenology. So um, you get a sense that he was really quite in the heart of that whole um, environment. I guess he's best known today as the first husband of Hannah Arendt. So that was a kind of a, a thing that I guess today almost dominates when people narrate his life. So I'm always a bit like hesitant how significant it is. It's not really quite, quite sure. And then really in the 1930s, when he's trying to establish himself as an academic, he, um, you know, gets advice that he should leave his university career until Nazi, uh, the Nazi kind of craze or whatever it was called uh, to him has passed. And then he spent 17 years in exile that were really formative. So first in Paris and then in California, where he worked in factories and was really poor down and out while still in the kind of conversation with the whole German emigre culture that was there. And from so most of the time in the States, he was actually in New York. And then in the 1950s, he returned to Europe. And that's really when he started publishing his books. So it's he's kind of a remarkable figure that he ended up publishing close to 30 books. Mm-hmm. But most of these were written after he's 50 years old, or at least published, right? So there's a lot of writing that he's mm-hmm. drawing on that is earlier. So um, he, was, he was spiritually French, really. They always, <laughs> they always write so much. And there's a, right. there's sort of something humorous, humorous there that I sort of feel I have to mention because I think it's probably the first. It's the first time I've ever heard of such a thing. So often there is this, there is a criticism, especially I guess from the feminist angle of this notion of like, oh, she she was so and so's wife, right? Like they get pushed aside, and this is the <laughs> right. this is the first and only time I've heard of he was her husband. You know, it's one of the few times in philosophy where I guess, you know, like there has been, I guess, an organic, the hierarchy has gone the other way in an organic sense, whether or not you, you know, agree with it. But it's humorous. I've never heard of such a thing before. It's quite funny. Oh, no, I definitely agree with it. And I think it's a nice, um, yeah, it's a nice way to think about unders going the other way or, or flipping things, inverting things. This is really a key thing he does and maybe also a key reason why he's remained quite marginal in a certain extent. Um, so when, when, did he, so, when did he die? Sorry. So Oh, yeah, sorry. So he died in 1992. I'm just trying to get my dates right. And so really from the mid-1950s to his death, he lived in Vienna. Mm-hmm. Um and he was, you know, he would travel um, for his work, but he would never, he never taught at a university after in the States. So in the States, he was a, a lecturer at New School in New York for a brief period. But he kind of established himself as this kind of public intellectual, he was especially active in the anti-nuclear movement. He was mm-hmm. writing on nuclear weapons. And he kind of carved out a, a bit of a, the figure as a like a position as a public intellectual who was very confrontational with the with academic philosophy. So he would uh, deem their approach hypocritical. I would say, you know, how can you talk about ethics, all these topics, without directly relating them to what's happening in the world right now? So he traveled to Japan, visited Hiroshima, these kind of journeys 
I really some of the material he uses in his philosophy and thought. Um, and he remained that kind of public intellectual and kind of quite public voice to his death, really. And and he literally published into his 90s. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Just because of, I'm only asking this because of the, the time frame. I mean, I and I have a great interest in in the other person I'm going to mention's work. I mean, did he have anything to do with Ernst Jünger? Um, I mean, he mentions Ernst Jünger once in a while mm-hmm. um, as a reference, um, but I don't think there's any direct contact. So the, the thinkers he was most direct, uh, directly in, in communication with were Hans Jonas, who was mm-hmm. a, a kind of a lifelong friend. Helmut Plesner and Max Scheler were really important for him. Like he was, I think, Max Scheler's assistant and like philosophical anthropology, that whole school of thought mm-hmm. um, is really central to his early work and, and goes all the way through. And um, Helmut Bloch would be kind of a kind of this correspondence, this correspondence with um, Adorno, this correspondence. I mean, Walter Benjamin was his cousin or second cousin. So it's really that kind of circle. So there's absurd connections. A lot of the letters, by the way, are being published. So for mm-hmm. people who are reading German, they're quite fascinating correspondences. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I'm sure more of his biography will will come in because he's, I think he's, you know, it seemed from reading your own work uh, that the biography and his philosophy is completely intertwined. Um but I'm I'm intrigued to begin with where you began with with shame. So I mean, if you think this mm. is a, perhaps a good like sort of seed to begin with, I mean, why why did why did this uh, piece interest you so much? And what what is uh, what is Anders' analysis of shame in this in this bodily sense here? Yeah, no. Um, so the piece I came across is called the Pathology of Freedom, and it's a really fascinating essay from I think 1930. It was published originally in French, in a French translation. And I think part of that was done by Levinas. So already it's kind of absurd, the the names that appear. And in a sense, it's like a rewriting of Heidegger's notion of being thrown into the world. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Instead of turning to anxiety, it's using shame, the affect of shame. So it's kind of saying that we experience ourselves as precisely as we are, inescapably we, that would mm. be the experience of shame. But at the same time, this enables us to imagine that we could be different. Right? So there's a certain rift. And we have around us all these people who live different lives. And we think, oh, I could be like that person. I could be like that. And he, and he calls it the shock of contingency, right? We're unsettled by this experience that we seem to be choosing, but that we all make all these mistakes that are embarrassing and are constantly confronted with the limits of our own freedom, with our own choice. Mm. And he says this somehow becomes an engine of our lives. And the essay then just goes out to to kind of track different ways people respond to this shock, to this shame. So he says you can become historical. You can really kind of say there's only one way of being. You have to be a good, like, kind of German or a good, good citizen. You need to... There's, kind of police how people are you can have what he calls the nihilistic response where you kind of pretend to be bigger than the world and become everything and do everything and kind of have this kind of very wide-reaching way and he says but whatever the whatever the solution might be you'll never escape 
the memory that you want, that you know, that you didn't know what you would become. Okay. Sorry, it's a bit of a complicated, complicated sentence, right? He says, regardless how much you want to convince others that you, that you chose that this is your plan and your life, there's something unsettling that you can't get rid of. And I guess in his later work, technology becomes the dream that we could actually take control. So there's this deep connection to that. But but that was the essay. It really fascinated me in its writing, in its originality. It was very similar if you read like existential thought. There's nothing radically different in the tonality or ideas, but the imagery and style was really captivating to me. Do you, do you agree? Do you feel the shame in some sense? Um, I mean, I guess I recognize what he calls the shock of the contingent, right? The the fact that circumstances or coincidences seem to play a very big part in the way we go through life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and if we don't, and they they are deeply troubling because they don't easily get integrated into a narrative of self or something like that. It's like, and I found that really fascinating, this, um, this focus not on the kind of, the strong version of myself or the I, right? But 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 the kind of part of ourselves that we all know about, but is very random. We get encountered with it. I, so I do agree with the significance of that. Yes. Mm. Um, and then does this evolve into what seems to be now known as, at least in the English speaking, like this is a thing that's sort of come through as maybe the one Anders thing we would know about, which is this this dialogue that he has with Prometheus, like the story of Prometheus. So this notion of shame that we've spoken about, does this then evolve into Promethean shame, which is sort of the the central, one of the central focuses of your own book? Yeah. Um, So the idea of Promethean shame is central to a book by Anders called The Antiquirtite Dismension. So usually translated as The Obsolescence of Human Beings. It's, uh, I guess, his best known work in German it was kind of quite a bestseller um mm-hmm. sold so widely and in that book it opens with this chapter where he says we feel um embarrassingly limited when faced with our own technological objects right so and he so this is a book dated to the mid-1950s and he relates this anecdote of going to an exhibition i think of dishwashers in in california or something like that and he sees how the people around him are hiding their hands behind their back because you know they're clearly not as good at washing up dishes as the dishwasher is and this becomes this kind of first humoristic image and um of what he then calls Promethean shame. And it's this feeling of inferiority uh, towards our own technological objects. And I think there is a very deep connection to what I just said in terms of the logic, right? Because mm-hmm. in a sense, he, he says, well, we all make, like in response to this this feeling of being contingent, of not having chosen our lives where we're born, who we are, we then all have to actively try and make ourselves and we will use all sorts of devices to do so. We will internalize all of that. But there might come a point in which you suddenly feel um, put in your place by your own device or when your device might suddenly make you feel inadequate, unwanted, or if someone else is more interested in your kind of technological devices than you or something like that. Mm. 
that you might feel inferior, right? And Anders really spins this into quite an elaborate theory of saying we kind of encounter ourselves in the modern world as as malfunctioning machines, as kind of machines that haven't got the kind of freedom that all other machines have. You know, machines have a certain purpose and aim that can be fixed easily, all these kind of things. So that's, I guess, the way his thought evolves with respect to shame. But it remains a very central motif. Mm -hmm. It seems that once, I mean, so I've had a fair few primitivists, such as John Zerzan, on the podcast to try to defend their view of like we should go back and it seems to me that that whole idea really is um critiqued very quickly by the notion of once you have symbolic language um once you move away from uh the conscious consciousness where you just in symbolic form symbolic language move through to abstract language like talking like we are you really can't go back and it seems perhaps the same thing would apply with anders of well we're in this situation so is there um an agency in terms of like should we try become more like machines or is this a decision we can make <laughs> uh you know what are we what are we to do with this i mean I'm, and i will just say when i when i read it i mean this was a i mean this sort of reveals probably my own like inferiority in terms of the technology because it was an idea that when I was reading it I was very like no this is complete nonsense I don't feel <laughs> inferior but now I, I I realize the irony that we're both sat here wearing glasses right like I basically couldn't do it <laughs> I couldn't even see you without them so I'm sort of been put in my place by my technology constantly um but yeah I mean oh, should, should, what, what what are we to do it we it seems that we can't get out of this at all Oh, no, absolutely not. There's no getting out, right? So, I mean, that's why it's such a significant experience for Anders and becomes such an engine. And I guess it might help to situate where this is coming from, from a phenomenological perspective and mm -hmm. philosophical anthropology. So rather than thinking of technology as a thing that is in some way separate to the human or to our lives, this way of thinking really thinks of technology as an integral part of our sense and experience of self. So it would no it would not make any sense to say non-technological or something like that ever. And a really good experience uh, illustration is actually the experience of shame or the experience of feeling naked, right? It's only once you've completely internalized clothing, only once it has become so fully part of your sense of self that the loss of that clothing can somehow make you feel exposed. So rather than seeing the naked body as the kind of natural animal body, it's for thinkers like Anders, it's the clothed, fully like kind of immersed body that no longer even senses the technology, forgets about the glasses. That's the natural state of being human, right? But what happens if you start to internalize devices, objects that have an agency that is very strong and an agency that might outclass yours or might do things that you don't understand can't explain all of these things right suddenly the limits of your body and of your own existence will be illuminated in new ways maybe uncomfortable ways they might make you feel unwanted exposed you know we're afraid of being replaced all these kind of things would kind of feed into the wider landscape of promethean shame mm. there's something interesting here i mean you mentioned the phenomenology of it so this brings to mind really 
Heideggerian analysis of technology in terms of the present at hand, and then it becomes ready at hand once we have that like engagement of it from Dasein or whatever. It seems that with Anders, this is more of a reciprocal relationship where like the ready at hand might actually be on the side of technology. Like the dishwasher is looking at the human, being like, "Look, come on, buddy, I'm, <laughs> I'm, you, you know full well, like I'm doing everything way better than you." Uh, same with the, like a vacuum cleaner. So it seems like the re- the ready at hand is now uh, from the subject of the te- of technology. It's like speaking from the object. Yeah, and I mean, in a sense, we could also call it Promethean enthusiasm to an extent, right? If you think the lengths to which we go to arrange ourselves around our objects <laughs> and to make sure that they work smoothly and to interact with them in a way that the functions unfold really well. This becomes a part of Anders's kind of thought, right? If you're willing to kind of train and learn how you need to adapt your own behavior so the machine works well, then on some level, there is a relationship that is internalized that exceeds what we consciously narrate or what we might even perceive. And I guess here comes the kind of critique of Heidegger. I mean, Heidegger was like Anders was a student of Heidegger's, but at the same time, throughout his later life, especially would really attack Heidegger, especially Heidegger's politics. Mm. And one of the things he really attacked, and this is a really nice essay from 1949, one of the the things he writes in English, actually, so if people are interested, it's called On the Pseudo-Concreteness of Heidegger's Philosophy. (laughs) So... And he attacks Dasein for saying, well, it's very nice that you have this analogy or this discussion of technology, but in your discussion, there's only hammers. You know, it's like a Dasein is just hammering is in this artisanal world. But mm-hmm. we live in a world with factories, with with industrialized weapons, with the world that you're describing is not one we live in. Mm-hmm. And in in the world we live in, this relationship to technology clearly doesn't unfold quite the way that, that you're suggesting. Yeah. And and you know, and, and Anders very quickly links that to to the politics, of course. I uh, I now I now adore Anders even more because my biggest bugbear in philosophy, just as a small anecdote. I mean, I used to be a carpenter before I started this as my job, and so when I used to read Heidegger, I was like red in the face with annoyance because he has this fetishization of you know, craft and authenticity. And then there's these pictures of the wooden well that he made, which is like the worst carpentry I've ever seen. <laughs> and it's like dreadful. Like he talks about carpentry all day long, but he's awful at it and can't do it. But then this irony of like, when I was stood for 10 hours on my feet all day, sanding a sash window, I was like, if you were here, Heidegger, you would be like on your knees, revering the belt sander, the mechanical belt sander. So I'm in complete agreement with Anders there of like the world he has outlined is like a mixture of the Luddite and the technology. And it's a complete fiction in terms of what he's actually trying to defend. And I never, I never liked him for it. And people still try to defend his like craft thing and it's complete nonsense. And it falls apart when you see his carpentry, um, it, it, <laughs> to be honest, but uh, that's probably me being mean about Heidegger, but you know, no, I, fair I, enough. <laughs> I just wanted to add that in. Um, but, uh, so what you were talking about, though, the difference between humans and things, it's a really interesting quote from Anders that you put in your book. Things are free and human beings are unfree. So we are, our freedom is contingent on our relationship with things, with technology. Yeah, I mean, I guess it goes back to the way we 
started to think about shame as an experience of limits and specifically an embodied experience with with strict physiological limitations. So even like the best athletes in the world, they can train all their life. There will be a physiological limit how fast they will be able to go in the same way as like our cognitive capacity, like part of a bodily existence is that we're somehow colliding with all these limits. And Anders, Anders is making this kind of argument in the context of an imagined kind of dialogue where he says, oh, everyone everyone kind of seems to say, well, but humans are free and we're creative and we have all these things and objects are just mechanical things. And he says, well, that's actually, you have to think it the other way around. We are actually highly limited in our cognitive capacity we, and our like our senses have certain spectrums and technology is not bound by any of this. And even though one individual object might have its limitations, he says technological objects exist as a process, as a series. So if, um, you know, a certain friction is achieved, so if you built a car that is running, say, 100 miles an hour, that doesn't mean that you can't pe- technologically push through that limit. Mm-hmm. Technology can can kind of go on and on and on and on. It's continuously reforming itself in a way that we as humans couldn't possibly hope to do. And and I guess for him, that becomes one of the great ironies, right? The better technology becomes, the more it can do, the more it can see, um, compute, all those kind of things, the more limited humans seem to appear in comparison, right? <laughs> it's kind of, it's this kind of gulf that opens up that... Um, so it's in this sense that he thinks freedom as a process of, of, of I guess, what might in certain philosophical registers called becoming, right? So technological objects are continuously evolving, whereas the evolution of the human is so, so slow <laughs> that it would be ridiculous <laughs> to call us free in that sense. Yeah, and it seems, I mean, I think, perhaps we're both tiptoeing around you know the talking point of the day which is ai as like the the ultimate technology and it seems like with dishwashing you have this like single thing like a dishwasher washes Mm. dishes and we can keep getting better at washing dishes and it seems like there's this whole talk of an artificial intelligence would allow more freedom for humans but i guess in the anders anders sense it would be like once you have a what they call an AGI, which is now, you know, automating everything and blah, blah, blah. It would be the ultimate limitation of our freedom. We'd realize that how absolutely pathetic we are because it's sort of finally done the last thing, which is thinking for us. So now we're just, mm. we would be like, oh, look, those humans are still around. What would we even, <laughs> what would we do? Just be jealous. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean... It is, as you were saying, kind of an inevitable thing to come up. I guess if we approach it again from the lens of philosophical anthropology, we would have to somehow say that all human intelligence is artificial. I mean, you made the great point earlier about symbolic language and that kind of thing, right? So already a bodily organism has kind of merged with a symbolic system, some sort of thing to create what we might call speech, intelligence, that kind of thing. We experience that as a capacity we have. But at the same time, you couldn't speak if, say, the English language didn't exist as a kind of system of signs in the same way that we couldn't now speak without the computer here. And I'm sure 
this is somehow shaping the way we speak, seeing each other. <laughs> so for Anders, all of this kind of thing would be, in a sense, human intelligence is artificial intelligence to an extent. So what we are witnessing now is the basic, <laughs> is kind of getting rid of the human element in that equation of using the kind of data, the kind of human experience that has been datafied in vast amounts to enable machine processes to continue that pro thought or whatever you want to call it without us, right? Without yeah. us being involved. And I think that's when it becomes profoundly humiliating. I mean, <laughs> one, I, I don't know if people watch Jeopardy. There was one thing I was always fascinated with. Jeopardy is an American game show. I had little to do with, but as Promethean shame goes, there was a beautiful illustration of it in 2012 um the all-time jeopardy champion in this kind of general knowledge game was like publicly humiliated by an ai program called watson and he was like profoundly humiliated and he could see it and he would like go on ted talks and he would talk about how dreadful it was you know he dedicated his life to playing jeopardy <laughs> but, but now there's this machine that can just do it and he felt you know, awful. Now, I don't think that's necessarily how AI has to unfold and be applied or anything like that. But in one future, it can certainly be used to make people feel superfluous, bad. Mm -hmm. So, so yeah, I don't know if that makes kind of sense in response to your kind of... Um, no, it does. I, I, but image, I think, I, but, yeah, yeah, it does. I, but I think it alters the image of... So there's this whole notion that humans are going to be like destroyed. Um, but I think the destruction will be like an internal one of instead of, you know, the classic Terminator cyborgs, blah, 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 all that sort of ridiculousness. It will be one where machines are just getting on with what they want to do. And we are these completely just superfluous, like we're, we're just a ontologically gratuitous, like we're just hanging around now. Um, yeah. So, <laughs> Um, but I guess one question there is for Anders, is there any like sympathy on the side of the human or is the human not really a thing in the way we think of it, right? Like, is there any sympathy for this fleshy body, emotional, non-technological, non-rational being that we are? Oh, for Anders, yeah, absolutely, right? He's saying, in a sense, he wants to defend this image, right? Or he doesn't necessarily want to defend the human, right? Because he kind of rejects the singular he says humans the dis defining trait of humans is that you can be in as many different ways as as they can be right he says like just looking at the world and at history is evidence enough that there's no one right way of being human there's no one singular human and in a sense he's saying what technology achieves is actually forcing upon humans a certain way of being in a sense it's almost creating this singularity this singular type in in the kind of mold of technology and he's basically saying a world in which we can't be limited in which we can't be clumsy failing all of these things is not a world we as humans can live in so he's very much questioning the ends to which technology are being developed and put to use but he's not I mean, there's a very strong Luddite vibe running through his work, but he's not a Luddite in that sense that he says we shouldn't have technology or we shouldn't use it or shouldn't develop it. He's just saying this is happening in a way 
where humans are being actively made superfluous, deprived of choices, um, deprived of the choice of how they might want to live, all those kind of things. And that, I guess, the things that we usually associate in the Western canon with human existence, like free will, responsibility, all of these things have become antiquated residues of a world that is no more, right? It's just this kind of romantic image of the human just doesn't make sense in a world in which you have to log in to even, you know, I don't know, receive your mail. It's Mm. not that kind of thing. There's new power structures in place. Mm. I mean, just, you know, we mentioned Luddites and just as we were talking, I realized like the Luddites actually fell prey to the Anders point themselves because they wouldn't have been able to smash the looms with their hands. So they would have had they they would have been humiliated by the fact they had to use a hammer to smash, which is you know so they there was no escaping it, and there is no escaping it. It's the primitivist problem is like well what do you want to do just call it like you would you would symbolically know you are being a primitivist which is not what it is, um, but this notion of the singular type of human that is being developed by developed I guess like coercively by technology, it seems that as you said we we to err is to human like we make mistakes we fall over we do whatever uh you know we have spontaneity we do things which are like aren't rational within the confines of a limit so it seems like technology is attempting to to, you know homogenize all human beings to be this singular type but they're this singular type is always going to be a failure because the foundation is human so Mm. what happens do we just do we just get ground out of existence i mean i guess for like i really like that image um if you let's think about something like reaction time right Mm -hmm. um this is like once you start to look at human beings through the lens of reaction times um then there will be people like me who are incredibly slow to react and almost like a comedic like double take every time and you know clumsiness and falling over is very much something that goes through my day there might be people who are incredibly alert. And of course, we can measure all of humanity just using this one measure, right? We can say, oh, humans have a limited reaction time. This this person here is the best, the best human, like the fastest reactor. These people are kind of useless. We can't use them in this world in which a certain reaction time is required. So that's what I mean by like a unifying quality. So so technology seems to create all these metrics, all these points, all these perspectives from which you can compare every human existence to every other one, right? Um, and this is what is so um, kind of critical of, because at the end of the day, these are all social technologies, right? They're developed, they're presented to us as objective, as, oh, is these kind of completely universal measures that are empirically verifiable. But the reason why that knowledge is put to use will be very situated. It will be in the interest, say, reaction time might be to be a fighter pilot, you need this reaction time. So so it's already, the significance of that metric is already completely embedded into some sort of worldly structure or political structure. And, And I guess that's what Anders is so kind of concerned with that these kind of calculative numerical measures of a human existence seem to be valorized much higher in a world in which 
we have very sophisticated technology and the stuff that is hard to quantify and compare kind of is devalued. Mm -hmm. Does this transform our understanding that we're scared of death into actually a large part of this is a humiliation, like we're laying on our deathbed as as this eternal monitor lives on and we die. <laughs> like we're not actually scared of it. It was sort of a, perhaps like almost a resentment of like, great, you know, I, I have to be in this, there's sort of a strange Gnostic element in this of like, uh, you know, um, yeah, but I mean that the fear yeah. of the fear of death transformed into actually the the ultimate humi- it's the ultimate humiliation in the face of anyone who's dying is going to be surrounded by basically um you know a cocoon of technology that is gloating um yeah as we fade away. And that will ironically not just not die but it will probably continue to improve right as it, <laughs> as it um, I mean for Anders he calls this and this is, I guess, a bit of a parody. It's part of his style of thinking. He calls it the malaise of being unique. He says, well, in a world in which everything exists in multiple copies, um, like, you know, there's thousands of cars of the same type and they can be kind of revved up and fixed up and improved and so forth. We seem to become like the only ones who are singular. And this is embarrassing, and it's especially embarrassing because we know we're going to die, and it's going to go downhill, that kind of thing. So he he starts to talk of what he calls industrial reincarnation. So we we dream that we can somehow participate in the way that objects exist, right? We can fix our body, we can have like a spare spare organs, we can rejuvenate ourselves, and these are of course all things we see today happening right before our eyes mm -hmm. and that we could somehow participate in what he calls the deathless existence of things right because if you want to you can continuously repair an object and kind of keep it running um so it, it again becomes this kind of memento mori right so the things around us are the kind of mirror of what we're not mm. um i i never know like I mean, for people who will be familiar with how Anders writes, this can all feel really dark, yeah. or you can read it with a with a kind of twist of humor inside, and then it becomes a very different kind of thing. So, yeah, these are very hard ideas, I guess, to, well, I think to get your head around. I would certainly agree with that, because reading your book, I was like, man, this is really pessimistic. But now talking to you, I realize the humor in it. Um, so that's a... I think that's a difficult aspect because it is so pessimistic to, to, to get across. I mean, does that come across in the, in the German, in Anders writing, this sort of somewhat cynical humor? Oh, if, yeah. I mean, Anders has a real, a very peculiar way of using German. Um, he's a real stylist of the German language, um, writes very long sentences and creates like these images. So a lot of his thought gives us some sort of mental image that is surreal. Mm -hmm. So he is, has a very strong affinity to the surrealist movement. He wrote a lot of surrealist literature, that kind of thing. So these are the kind of images he creates. And often they're created simply through the choice of vocabulary. So uh, so you kind of slide into them as a, as a mood. They're not really there. 
So I would say, if anything, the German is probably darker because in English you have to kind of make, when translating, you have to make choices. How are you going to handle this? Are you going to lose the image and just translate the content? Are you going to kind of save the image and therefore the immediacy of the ideas? And I tend to go for the latter because I think there's a certain visual quality. So what is what is the world? What is modernity? Is modernity itself a, an abstract function of this stuff that we've been talking about? Um, so I think that's a really tough question to answer in many ways, because I'm not sure Anders has one consistent answer to this. But on some level, the Industrial Revolution is identified as modernity, and simply for the reason that it's the moment when the hammer stops being a hammer and starts being this complex machine that is driven by steam power. Therefore, there's a there's a distance between the human body and the machine, right? So suddenly, lots of people are working collectively on one machine, rather than having that kind of more intimate touch. And I think for Anders, this is a moment where everything starts to change. Um, so that's a very clear moment. Um, there's another one there's another moment which is quite significant. He uses the term post-literary quite a lot, or not quite a lot, but significantly. So that seems to be the shift from a world in which there's mainly text and in which people can interact with written words or language directly, and a world in which reproduced images start to kind of populate existence. So that's the, the birth of photography or something like that would mm. be the beginning of a post-literary age, a post-textual age in which language is joined by all these other forms of mediating and communicating that are not text-based in quite the same way. Mm. So these are two really decisive moments of modernity, I think, for Anders. And the third one would be um, the end of modernity is very clearly dated that's uh, Hiroshima, right? So that's when we have entered, according to Anders, a new epoch, what he calls the end time. So um, that's the really dark part of, or the kind of confronting part of Anders' thought starts there. End, end times in the sense of sort of a technological eschatology? like the, the, Yeah, the, it's the, the... The end times of the human race, like technology is now well on its way to destroy us. So it's basically... The moment, so for Anders, he, and again, this is difficult. I, I think this is actually quite a serious point he's trying to make. He's saying that with Hiroshima, with the deployment of the, of nuclear weapons, for the first time, humanity can at least theoretically extinguish itself, mm -hmm. which means we have entered an epoch in which we must fight not to make use of this technology. Right? And he says, this fight can never end right? <laughs> because the moment we lapse, this self-extinction might happen. And at the same time, we'll never be able to uninvent nuclear mm -hmm. weapons, right? Because even if we got rid of every one of them, the knowledge would somehow be easily reconstructed. So he's kind of saying, we've entered a new kind of time, a time in which we need to learn how to live with these technological forces but in which we're clearly not yet up to that task. We're still pretending we're good old humans. We still focus on like our individual feelings, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So that's the kind of idea that emerges 
I guess, especially in the later work on, on nuclear weapons. And you mentioned, just to jump back a little bit, you mentioned the, the notion of the post-literary. I mean, does and this seems to connect to Anders' idea, which he calls iconomania. So just this uh, sort of overwhelming, that post-literary is absolutely overwhelming. Um, is, are there limit, limits to this iconomania? Because we seem to be, um, we seem to be addicted to this. Like we, we, yeah. that word is so on point. Like we are becoming maniacs about it. And I, yeah, I, I think I really like that term. Um, and I, I like, I find it very intriguing how Anders talks about images and photography because he clearly seems very fascinated with the technology. And this is generally the case. He's always fascinating. He always tries out these technologies and talks about them in a very pragmatic sense. But then he comes up with these really kind of surreal, oblique images. So. He introduces the idea of iconomania by kind of saying that he's never met anyone who didn't carry a picture of themselves mm. in, in, say, their wallet. Mm. And he starts to kind of say, oh, that's really curious because I'm standing right in front of the person and they will show me an image of themselves and say, look, that's me. Mm. <laughs> and he says, oh, images seem to promise this control, this clarity. I can show you who I am, what I am. So mm. he talks of it as an addiction to taking images, to earning things via images, to framing them in our way, and to be able to reproduce them. The idea that we talked about that you might die, but your image lives on, that kind of thing. And again, he's he's approaching this in a very concrete and immediate sense by saying, by observing the strange kind of behaviors. Uh, so people might be embarrassed to show you a picture if they look much better on the picture mm. and say, oh, this this picture is so good. And I actually feel less, less accomplished or beautiful or whatever than in this picture, that kind of thing. But in, rela rela in relation to what we've been talking about, I mean, I can't remember when I was talking about it. It was a long time ago now with some guest, but it was about the notion of social media and uh, sort of virtual realities where where one will have an avatar so you know the the it might be like um a cartoon image of themselves or some video game character but an avatar they've created and the the sort of irony that the notion of that's my avatar implies what that was based upon is the real you but what we're talking about here it seems peculiar like okay so there's an image of me which is like preferable because I've cur curated it and I look all good and whatever. But equally, as we're both talking, we've already mentioned the fact that like, well, I'm wearing this piece of technological shirt. I'm wearing my glasses. I've got my headphones in, um, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So like it, that abstract realm of what we related in the AI to that, like machinic intelligence or the technological intelligence or the technology uh, reminds me of a quote I heard recently from Amy Island where she says, as soon as a human being puts on a pair of pants, they're a cyborg. So like we are, mm -hmm. we, are we are, we are avatars. So this, this real human is, is gone. Like it's completely disappeared. And uh, I don't, I mean, what, what, <laughs> yeah, I don't know where to go with that, but like, it's, it's sort of an existential crisis of, yeah, there's me where I've just tailored myself more in the picture I'm showing you, but that, mm. that it gives us a bit of security that we not in the picture are our real selves but equally our real selves are completely reliant on this exactly the same language to exist so there is no yeah. real us i i think i mean it's a really beautiful image i, I really like that notion of you know 
do men we put on your pants or we're cyborgs and i mean i would completely agree with the notion that i guess there's no real human that can be separated from from technology and and i think that's a really crucial point to come back to but what under seems to track or suggest is that um like technologies such as you know once you think your image is more important than you are you begin to actively limit yourself you're going to maybe not go out you might prefer living via your avatar and your avatar is allowed to kind of go anywhere be seen by anyone that kind of thing but you might not afford yourself uh, that same freedom now of course there's an irony here because we just said oh there is not the avatar is me and not me right but um i think that's always this kind of tension that unders would would highlight it's not so much that one one part of you is more or less real it's mm. what part of you do you think is embarrassing what what part do you want to conceal what part do you want to work on and 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 who makes that decision right is it you or is it some sort of pressure that is coming out of this technological system to i mean social media it's freer now but there used to be a very very strong template function right mm. <laughs> that you had to upload a profile picture in a certain way where you're literally being formatted by the interface in a certain way so so a lot of the stuff that Anders writes almost is metaphorical when he says, you know, the world becomes like a template, a, a matrix, as he calls it, that just describes the basic function of a lot of our interfaces. This is this is fascinating. This is something I wrote about about a year ago when I was trying to figure out um, something that sort of confused me at the time, which is like, I don't know how familiar you are with like popularity of certain video games but there was a there is a subset of video games which are basically if you were to explain them to someone who's not in video into video games not that i'm huge huge into them but they would be like that can't be a thing so like really basic simulator games like truck simulator like you're just literally simulating trucking or power wash simulator where you power wash houses right these are like the most popular games and i was trying to figure out like why do people want to like work all day and then come home and exist in a simulator of like i'm going to drive a truck across a one-to-one -one map of the uk which is that like there's no differentiation between that and reality and it seems here that anders has probably cottoned on to why this is is like as soon as there's that transference of the real you into the digital or the thing world the technological world this was my own argument as well is that you sort of have replicated life and now that you are as your avatar you feel like i can be a bit freer now like i can't do this in the real world because of human humiliation or shame or like this i don't know what it is and now like i'm in the world i'm the thing so i don't have that limitation i'm no longer humiliated but then it's the interesting thing of what do we decide to do in this expansive technological world we decide to just be better truck drivers or better mm -hmm. power washers or like play the sims right like just replicate human life but in the technological world and it's sort of fascinating to me why we do that and it seems anders has sort of realized why that was way before any of this technology existed that we just want to be the thing yeah and and there's this anesthetic quality right technology inherently for anders makes you feel good makes something easier makes something easier to deal with 
morally easier. It's all laid out for you. All of these kind of things, the kind of completely incomprehensible fact of existence is laid out to you in a way in which you can drive through the UK, right? <laughs> and I don't want to belittle that in any way, because in a sense, there's no difference in, in terms of that to reading, say, a novel or reading philosophy or something like that. It's also a technology of trying to deal with that. But I guess what Anders, I mean, the image you just isolated would definitely be the kind of thing that Anders would highlight. <laughs> and this is exactly the kind of thing you would pick up on and say, this is the scene that philosophy needs to think. We, if you really want to understand the moment we're in and what it means uh, to live in high-tech um, environments, then these kind of everyday, the spaces that people seek out because they make them feel good and so forth, and the spaces they're trying to escape from because they make them feel bad <laughs> or, or where they need to recover from, where they don't feel they can be themselves. Those those are like kind of primary spaces of interest. Um, but yeah, there is this real connection between feeling and technology. There's always a soothing element to technology, which... It's not emotional, you know, though. Is it emotional or is it more like plow over emotions and we just have functions, we have rationality? Um, so it's a really complex thing. So for Anders, I would say, or from this way of thinking, I don't know, I don't want to speak from his perspective, but the way of thinking is that there would be no emotion or bodily feeling that is not in some way shaped by technology, um, but that the feelings that we have when we feel like the absence of emotion, right? Or the absence of feeling would in, in the phenomenological way of thinking still be a kind of a feeling, a bodily feeling. Um, and technology seems very good at creating realities in which we know about something without necessarily feeling it, or in which we can be made to feel something without necessarily having to know it. So think about when you cry in a movie because it's sad, because say there's a death on screen or something like that. You might cry, but you're not feeling the loss, right? And at the same time, you might be involved in some sort of practice of consumerism and like say your smartphone and you know, oh, some of this material that is in my phone has been dug up somewhere in Africa and there's been terrible conditions at work and people have probably really suffered, but you can notice without feeling it, right? So you will have these kind of ways in which our sense of normalcy and so forth is configured by techno technology. And what becomes an emotion in the higher sense of a kind of a more structured narrated experience will in some way lead back to that. So one of the projects Anders continuously calls for is what he, is a history of feeling, right? When he kind of says, oh, we really need to study the way in which the feelings of a given epoch relate to the technological environment. So he says, like, without a castle, like courtly love or all these kind of things could not exist, right? Without um, a photography um, culture, the smile wouldn't have the same kind of so so there's these kind of connections that he's very interested in mm -hmm. there's one question uh that i really want to make sure i ask because i think it's the the lack in modernity why a lot of people are feeling a lot of young people especially are feeling like without an anchor which is our complete uh removal or at least slow 
just dissipation of initiatory rights, like rights of initiation, which would often symbolize, um, you know, that, that sort of movement from, from between different stages of life. And there was like an effort, I think, at a certain point of time, and once again, in an Anders type sense, to try um, alter what used to be like ritualized traditional initiation rights and say, well, now those are things like buying a house, right? So technology, um, having children. I mean, that's a certain one, but it, they, the majority of them were tethered to like, you've got your house. I don't know. You, then you get your hot tub and like, you know, this sort of technological sense of like maturity, but that, that hasn't really stuck. But Anders himself writes about initiation rights. So what have they, what are they for him and what have they become? Yeah, you really picked probably one of the absurdest images in the whole in the whole book. So the, I'm presuming you're talking about the, the jazz's initiation, right? Um, was that so, the one? Yeah. yeah. So, so I mean, Anders um, has a kind of a love hate relationship to certain forms of popular culture and a certain cultural arrogance that it's quite well known from the kind of Frankfurt school thinkers, I guess Adorno, if you know what Adorno wrote about jazz, you'll know where it is, it's kind of going. But I mean, in the book, I guess this is presented as quite a vicious image in which he talks of, of jazz or which at the time in the forties would have been popular music. That would have been a generic kind of name um, as the initiation, right? For the robot age, right? And he's isolating, uh, the syncopic beat, so what we call offbeat, mm. <laughs> that rhythm as the specific rhythm that belongs to the machine. And it's kind of the emerging, the emerging world of electronic beats of that kind of syncopic nature. And it's in this context that he uh, starts to present dance or dancing to this kind of music as an initiation, right? In which you would acquire the kind of bodily sense of self or the bodily measure that is, um, you know, that belongs to machines. And I mean, I read this as a parody, but it's also quite significant in like, there's a philosophical point to it at some level, but the reason why he does this seems to be about the break ending or breaks, right? Mm. Because this music has this kind of tendency to, in his words, arbitrarily stop and recommence. Mm. And he says, this is exactly how machines exist in the world, right? They work and then they're arbitrarily switched off and switched on again, that kind of thing. And he kind of says, what, you know, what the dancers do in that moment is they kind of accustom themselves to this machine being, they can be switched off, they can be switched on mm. and they're disowning their natural body, right? They're disowning their, their bodily measure, their intuitive like kind of measure. So there seems to be a really big kind of, yeah, there's a lot of, um, as I said, cultural elitism, and there's a, there's a lot of questionable kind of associations being made. But the point that I guess he's, he's making through this is that initiation rights today become the places where we live ourselves or train ourselves into a technological community or milieu or something like that. Mm. So you were talking about online gaming. That might be that. Um, I, I'm a user of Microsoft Word and Zoom. So learning that becomes a sort of initiation, right? Because this is going to be the, the world in which I live, with, with, in which I communicate myself. And you need to pass 
the test, right? And you can get honor and uh, you can be accepted in this kind of world in certain ways. Um, so that's one of the initiation rites that is isolated specifically. I'm just trying to think. It's a term that he uses here and there. But I guess it's, again, foregrounding the structuring of life through certain infrastructures that we possibly don't see. So music becomes that. And um, also that there is a conditional factor to this. If you don't participate, if you don't sign up to certain things or turn yourself into the kind of person that passes these tests, your life will be very diminished. Well, you, you wouldn't be able to get by. You, you can't exist yeah. like that anymore. Um, mm. But those the thing is with those initiation rites, I mean, they seem to be a complete facade. I mean, no one really likes jazz, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I guess, yeah, I mean, the way he talks about it, I don't know. I don't know if he actually liked jazz because he seems to have such a, I mean, he definitely didn't like it in the sense of like his writings are full of like, you know, he writes a lot in diary form and, and the anecdotes will come up. Oh, there was jazz playing. So we had to move on or some that kind of thing. It seems to be something he avoided, but at the same time, it's the thing he turns to, to say this is where I can understand. So the thing that he finds most comfortable for himself becomes the place where he wants to look. Mm. And I think that's what is kind of interesting when it comes to our own relationship to technology. It's very easy to kind of focus on the things that one is very familiar with and understands. But if you go to the, the world of emotion that is very alien and then say somehow this very alien feeling it's like the flip side of the thing that makes me feel so comfortable and they belong together. Mm. Um, I think that's become my kind of response whenever I'm kind of like, oh my God, what is this terrible thing that people are doing on the internet? I'm like, hang on. What, where is my response coming from? Uh, yeah, it's, it's just uh, what I was going to say is this notion that when you're maybe under like 20, you have this you have this sort of belief of like, you know, I'll never, I'll never get caught out. Like I'm always going to keep up with culture, etc. And then you, all of a sudden, one day, you're like, yeah, I really like something comes on the radio, and you're like, what? You know, I, I, yeah. I and you, and I mean, it's once again back to that limitation of the human is like your inherent finitude is like, yeah, I'm, I'm like almost now already too tired to keep up with this. Like I can't, I haven't got that youthful like ability to assimilate this, and it's sort of that realization of like, yeah, a lot of my own quote unquote jazz that whatever the thing is for me is now like solidified in my own limitation, right? And then that will happen and again and again and again. Whereas technology, I guess, is like, yeah, you know, it just, it can, it doesn't have that limitation. Yeah. It can just assimilate and move on. Yeah. And I guess it's going to speed up, right? And there's going to be more and more cultural products that it's, that evolve at a quicker and quicker pace um that kind of acceleration is a real topic and i guess that's a key point of this initiation right it was all about the acceleration as well now i remember <laughs> right that one of the one of the one of the facets of this music is the actual 
fact that the beats often speed up and slow down and that mm. kind of thing, right? So he's kind of saying, you're learning to accelerate yourself, to forget yourself, to give yourself up to this ecstasy of technology, of being, mm. I guess, fully absorbed uh, by this this world, right? That That is multi-sensual, like that really takes hold of you. Mm. One one uh, thing on that though, just to just to throw it in, is like I'm f- seeing. I mean, I'm probably making an error that Anders points out at some point, but I'm beginning to see the inherent limitations of like the human brain in terms of this technological acceleration. Is like when you look at a young, you know, like a lot of young children now will have like tick, like TikTok is like just this demonic, horrible thing. But it's intriguing to me in terms of. To what extent can we now get faster than this in terms of information overload, right? It's like swipe, 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 swipe. So it's like the human body almost has to now accelerate itself to keep up with the technology. But is there a terminal point where it's like you like technology is like you, you, you're done. Like you can't take it in fast enough anymore. And TikTok seems to be the limit because like, you know, the brain, the eye and the human hand like swiping, we can't get faster than this. So maybe we will. Maybe we'll just I don't know, like get one of those Elon Musk chips in our head and be able mm. to to do it. But it's um, like, yeah. I mean, we're molding ourselves around technology, which is guess what we've been on about all along. But it's yeah, yeah. And I mean, I think the image is actually quite a nice one, right? You can't simply do that. <laughs> you can't simply go on. Like if we went on, I'm not a user of TikTok. If I went on, I would have to train and I would have to acquire the way until I can do this as fast and as quick. So one of the ironies that that Anders points out, and this is the again the kind of the theme of the the obsolescence of the human of, of his central book is that whilst we like to re- narrate the world that technology is servicing our needs, it's actually the other way around. We generate the needs that technology dictates, right? And mm-hmm. and to, to enjoy TikTok, you have to turn yourself into the kind of being who really needs this connection, <laughs> who needs to enjoy it, right? And this is no different to, um, you know, if you want to be the kind of person who needs philosophy, it doesn't come out of nowhere, right? It, it, there is a lot of work that goes into these things, but I guess Anders would make a very strong distinction between the work that you choose to do yourself, that is a certain effort that you have to undertake, and the content that is kind of fed to you, that is stuffed down your throat, right? He has, he talks about the television as a stream, as a liquid feed, literally in the worlds of social media, that is kind of like the spoon that is stuffed straight into your mouth out of your tv device that's how you're given the world when you're watching tv and i guess a lot of streaming media and personalized media they align very strongly to to this image to this logic um there are limitations to the image (laughs) like the analogy won't fully translate into the digital age but yeah as i said i think this kind of tension between friction and the friction of the world and the anesthetic relief that technology brings. That was for me what allured me to Anders's thought. I thought it was a very novel and productive way to think about, I guess, the world I was living in and, and the way I kind of encounter people in that world. Is there anything you'd like to add about uh, your book or Anders' philosophy that you, you feel is key? Oh, no. I'm, I mean, just thank you for, you know, for having me on. And I hope like, 
we've gone um, down a bit of a rabbit hole in, in terms of of, of of our conversation. So, just for people who are completely unfamiliar with Anders, maybe just like to point out that there's a really wide range of topics Anders works on, not just technology. He wrote a lot of diaries um, about refugee experience, emigre experience. They're they're amazing. He wrote about space travel, all sorts of um, topics that hopefully will become much more accessible in English. And also that, I guess, the take I've given in this podcast, I'm sure not everyone working on Anders might agree with everything I said. And and that's the nice thing about um, this moment in time. Hopefully quite a lot of material will be coming out in English and more and more people are publishing on Anders. So so yeah, um, I guess that's the one thing I would have added. Where would you Where would you advise people to begin with his work? If they, I mean, I guess if they're English English speaking. So I mean, there's a really nice collection edited by Jason Dorsey, um, which is I think from 2014. I think it's just called Guntander's Man and Thinker, and there's a there's an overview of of the different kind of phases of his life and different strands of thought it's a multi-authored book um there's a special journal edition of thesis 11 which i co-edited from 2019 which again features i guess eight nine different ways of engaging with unders mm-hmm. um those are really good points in english but the real point to start would just be to read unders himself the the work that is available um thesis for the atomic age that that is the, the number one text I might recommend. I mean, it's very much on the nuclear work, but it's a very powerful text that that kind of sets out a lot. Um, and and yeah, and Anders. The nice thing about Anders is it can simply be read. He was very dedicated to writing in an accessible way. I don't think it requires a lot of philosophical kind of training or knowledge of the technological terminology uh technical terminology so, mm-hmm. so yeah. are you currently working on another another book on anders or um so i'm currently translating uh, the antiquitate is mentioned so that's the big kind of project in the anders world um so hopefully that will become coming out before too long so the promethean shame chapter we talked about is one chapter of that book one of four chapters and um yeah, that will be the next major thing. And in the wider spectrum, I guess I'm working with some of the ideas we talked about, especially the idea of the anesthetic kind of quality of technology. But yeah, that's about it. Sounds good. Well, uh, I'll be sure to put links for your own book and uh, the Anders things you mentioned in the description below. But um, yeah, Chris Muller, I think it's been a great conversation. Thanks very much. Well, thank you very much and thanks for your time.